Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and you might want to buckle up because today we are taking The Weeds time machine for a spin. There have been a few special moments in American history where real progress was achieved toward equality and protecting civil rights. Welcome to every one of you out there in this splendid scene of hope spread across the South Lawn of the White House. The Americans with Disabilities Act was one of those moments. With today's signing of the landmark Americans for Disabilities Act, every man Woman and child with a disability can now pass through once closed doors into a bright new era of equality, independence, and freedom. It was a piece of bipartisan legislation that was pushed up an immensely steep hill by activists and advocates for years. It will provide our disabled community with a powerful expansion of protections and then basic civil rights. It will guarantee fair and just access to the fruits of American life, which we all must be able to enjoy. And it really was momentous. President Bush even compared it to the Berlin Wall coming down. And now I sign legislation which takes a sledgehammer to another wall. I now lift my pen to sign this Americans with Disability Act and say, let the shameful wall of exclusion finally come tumbling down. God bless you all. The ADA is a significant piece of civil rights legislation that has profoundly changed the way American society operates. But the fight for the rights of Americans with disabilities started long before the bill was signed into law. And we're going to take a look at that history today on the actual anniversary of the ADA. Because while this was momentous legislation, it wasn't perfect. And we still have a lot of work to do to bring equity to the millions of Americans living with disabilities. 
Today, I'm joined by our very own Darland. Hello. And today's special guest, Ari Niemann. Hello. Ari is a PhD candidate in health policy at Harvard. Uh, he's worked in disability rights advocacy for over 15 years. He co-founded the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network in 2006, and in 2009, he was appointed by President Obama to the National Council on Disability. And in case you needed more proof that Ari is the perfect guest for today, he is also writing a book on the history of American disability advocacy. He is also, full disclosure, has been a personal friend of mine for over a decade, so I'm, I'm thrilled to finally have him here. Ari, welcome to the weeds and to the time machine. Well, thank you for having me. Um, we'll try to keep the throttle steady. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So first step in any time machine visit is, is deciding where to where to start our journey. So if you're you're telling the story of the origins of, of the American Disability Rights Movement and, and the events that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, where would you start telling that story? If we look at the early 20th century uh, in the United States, we begin to see some really concerning things happen to people with disabilities. Um, in the first half of the 20th century, a um, broad and powerful social movement that sought to breed better human beings in much the same way one might try to breed better horses or better dogs uh, really held a great deal of power in America. And as you know, the name of that social movement was eugenics. And um, you are likely familiar with the role that eugenics played in um, imposing many of America's race and ethnicity-based uh, uh, immigration restrictions, um, the role that eugenic thought played in a wide variety of aspects of the history of American racism. And you may also be familiar, of course, with eugenicists having played a role in involuntarily sterilizing tens of thousands of people with disabilities. Um, what many people are less familiar with is institutionalization of people with disabilities, in particular people with intellectual disabilities and persons with mental illness, skyrocketed in the first half of the 20th century. And this was very explicitly with an eye towards not protecting disabled people from society, but instead protecting society from disabled people. And so of course, it's not a surprise that all manner of different aspects of American society are built with an expectation that disabled people will be somewhere else, um, someplace separate. Prior to the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act in 1975, U.S. public schools educated only one in five children with disabilities. And many state uh, public education laws explicitly uh, uh, excluded people with many specific disability categories from receiving a public education. And of course, unsurprisingly, many parts of our built environment um, that we really take for granted today, like curb cuts on sidewalks or captions on television, didn't exist. They're, they're recent innovations won by the disability rights movement. So all of this really, really came together to spark this desire by people with disabilities to take control of our own lives and to change the way that society approached us. And that history really shows up 
really beginning in the mid-20th century, culminating in the ADA and, of course, the ongoing work of the modern disability rights movement. So when we talk about the disability rights movement, what are we actually saying? How did that kind of sense of group identity, in addition to the idea of self-advocacy, come together? Well, it's a relatively recent development. Militant disability activism actually has a, has a quite long history. You see it in the deaf community, really, even in the late 19th century. You begin to see it in the blind community in the 1930s and 40s. You begin to see it in the context of physical disability in the 1950s. But there, there are two big differences, I would say, from what we call modern disability activism. One is it's not modeled after civil rights. It's modeled after, by and large, the American labor movement, which is really you know, the, the dominant example in the public's mind of how you uh, undertake militant advocacy towards a collective goal. But in addition to you know, really seeing the labor movement as the, the natural place to go, a lot of these organizations would have been, and in some cases were, very afraid of any analogy to civil rights in the 1940s and 50s, a time when civil rights were, were deeply unpopular, when many of the disability organizations in question actually um, were segregated on the basis of race, particularly in their southern chapters, and when even where they weren't, they, they were very afraid of the idea of being tarred as you know, associated with something that was still very much outside of the American mainstream. So something starts to change in the 1960s and 70s. First, you begin to see a lot of interest on the part of disability activists in imitating the successes of the civil rights movement. You know, now we're past Brown v. Board, we're past the Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of a sudden, civil rights, which previously was <laughs> something that folks were just very antsy about um, associating themselves with, is now an organizing model that's been proven is very successful. And so you do see, in some instances, opportunistically, in other instances, you know, with a younger generation that actually does really believe these things in their bones and tries to build a much more multiracial movement with varying degrees of success, a shift towards a civil rights-oriented model of disability activism. But the other thing that you see, and this is just huge because there's, there's very little precedent for it, is you start to see the creation of disability as a coalition. And it is in many ways, an uneasy marriage, and in some ways very similar to the broad coalitions that have been created today around concepts like LGBTQ or people of color. You have very different groups that feel they have some common thread in their experiences with the broader society and try to come together and organize. And that, that is something very different from what came before. If you look at early 20th century or mid 20th century disability activism, groups are very uncomfortable with the idea of associating even with very similar disability categories. In 1935, when the Social Security Act was passed and it included within it cash assistance for the blind, who were the first group 
to win cash assistance from the federal government among civilians with disabilities. Uh, you first see that applied to a very specific diagnosis, not broadly, but second, even some of the groups that are left out sort of don't see it as applying to them. The National Association of the Deaf tells their members that they should be proud that Congress does not see them as akin to, quote, widows, orphans, and the blind, and that, quote, we are regarded as normal human beings by Congress and our chief executive. And so kind of the broad coalition doesn't come together until the 1970s. And I I would say part of the reason it finally happens is there is a recognition that, that you don't win broad civil rights protections in the absence of a broader coalition. You can get money. You can get services oriented around a particular diagnosis, but you know, you're not going to get the deaf civil rights law. You know, you're not going to get the uh, kidney disorder specific uh, employment non-discrimination protections. It only happens when you see groups come together and all of them have something to give, right? And so all of these folks really slowly over the course of the 70s and 80s come together and somewhat as a matter of principle, somewhat opportunistically say, hang on, we have this thing in common. Let's build this broader big tent coalition. What did that mean for some of the groups that had been more sort of successful in their aims before the creation of a a sort of broad popular front of people of various disabilities. It obviously seems like a good thing for like very stigmatized disabilities, intellectual disabilities. The National Federation of the Blind and others or blind advocacy groups were pretty successful. Like I'm reminded every time I do my taxes that there's a bigger standard deduction if you are legally blind. There is a lot of like specific carve outs for blindness as a disability as opposed to other disabilities. How do you get groups like that for which the the old approach seemed to be working on board with a, a broad front? It's very tricky, and there are a lot of hiccups. So NFB, I think, is a great example. Um, they're you know, a very important organization to the disability rights movement today and historically. Um, and they really emerge in the 1940s in the aftermath of the creation of Social Security because the federal government, having created Social Security and provided cash assistance in a state-federal partnership with um, a number of states who had already had state laws providing cash assistance to the blind, starts to impose its own rules. And a lot of those rules really means test these programs much more aggressively. So blind activists who had built a pre-existing structure of cash assistance out in the states now set out to defend it um, against uh, the encroachments of the Social Security Board. And they really build some extraordinary advocacy and capacity to do so. Now, when the 1970s comes along, it's become very tricky as to how much of that they want to share and you know how much they want to participate in this broader cross-disability coalition. Um, Ed Roberts, was one of the major figures in the um, independent living movement and was appointed by Governor Jerry Brown in his first go-around as governor of California to be director of the state's vocational rehabilitation program. 
Ed Roberts is a fascinating figure. He had been deemed too disabled to work by the state's VR program. Later, he ended up running the state's <laughs> VR program. Uh, really just an incredibly charismatic uh, guy who brought together the independent living movement, the number of other people very effectively. But he really tries in that role to take a cross-disability approach. And so there's pushback from blind and deaf groups who are concerned that this is going to lead to encroachment on long-established programs focused around their particular needs. So there's a process of trust building. Um, and even into you know, the point at which the ADA passes, and you know, everyone is pretty much on board with the idea of wanting the Americans with Disabilities Act to pass, civil rights law applies to everyone, that trust building is, is still going on. And every group really comes to the table with a desire to ensure that in building something new, they don't lose the things that they had created before. You mentioned in passing the existence of disability state assistance programs and commissions. And something that I'm always interested in when we get into the time machine to talk about federal laws is the federalist relationship between state and federal governments in terms of who is responsible for providing assistance and, you know, what the best kind of venue is for a coalition to get its priorities done. And it's striking to me that you don't have, you know, no one's pushing for California to pass like a model ADA. There is a lot of emphasis on the federal government as the guarantor of rights and preventer of discrimination here. Like, what was the decision that led the movement to really focus on the federal government? And what was kind of the status of legal protection, you know, both federal and state prior to the ADA? So there are a number of state disability rights laws that precede the ADA and precede Section 504, the ADA's predecessor. But um, you, you do see a number of state laws. There are varying degrees of strength, but uh, it was not the case that the federal legal protections were really, you know, the uh, start of everything and that prior to the ADA and 504, you had nothing. Now, I do think, if I may be so bold as to, to um, bring the time machine up to the near future, that may be a question that may come up again. You know, I, I thought it was very interesting. Um, you know, New York State just initiated a process of putting in place a constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights. Um, and uh, as part of the text of that amendment, they have some generic language regarding civil rights protections uh, to a variety of protected classes and disability is included there. Um, I think as we start to see more and more worry about what the Supreme Court may do to uh, civil rights protections of all kinds, including those related to disability, you may see more interest, certainly I'm interested, in seeing some of the things we've won over the course of the last 50 years codified in state constitutions operating under the assumption that we may not be able to count on the Supreme Court to continue to protect those rights in the future. So you have this pivot from single disability advocacy to disability as a whole advocacy. You have these new sort of civil rights inspired groups coming along. There's a fight over something called Section 504 that, that's really important to the formation of, of the disability rights movement. Walk us through that history a little bit. What what was Section 504? What was it a section of? <laughs> and uh, and sort of why did the protests around it wind up mattering so much? 
So Congress in 1973 passed the reauthorization of a relatively old law, it actually dates back to um, shortly after World War I, authorizing employment services, vocational rehabilitation to people with disabilities. Um, so the 1973 Rehabilitation Act was a relatively straightforward reauthorization, except that in part because there was this growing interest in the country in civil rights, a provision was incorporated entitled Section 504, guaranteeing non-discrimination and reasonable accommodation. Crucially, it's not just that you can't discriminate, you also have to make adjustments in programs or services or activities to allow for equal access for people with disabilities. And this applies to the federal government and to any entity that receives funding from the federal government. So this is, this is hugely, hugely important. And you would think when Congress is passing this that the um, focus of controversy is going to be on Section 504. Ironically, it wasn't. The Rehabilitation Act reauthorization of 1973 is vetoed twice by the Nixon administration, largely over questions of funding levels. Um, and so, you know, the Rehab Act actually is a source of argument. You know, activists uh, led by Judy Heumann, um, who also played a huge role in what was to come and, you know, really the building of the modern disability rights movement. She's still at it today. Activists uh, uh, block traffic on Fifth Avenue in New York and protest the uh, Nixon campaign's re-election headquarters and so on. But again, the focus of that debate is not on this hugely impactful civil rights law. It's about funding levels. Um, people don't really realize how big a deal this could be. So the law does pass. And only after passage is there, is, does there start to be a recognition, both on the part of disability activists and on the part of regulated entities, that hang on, this, this little thing called Section 504, that could be a really big deal. That could change a whole lot. And of course, if you're a regulated entity, you say that could force us to do a whole lot of things. Um, and so you begin to see some, some pretty aggressive pushback. And it... it persists into the Carter administration. And so by 1977, the Carter administration, which people forget, Jimmy Carter was, was actually pretty cautious um, and somewhat conservative in the regulatory state as president, has still not issued the uh, 504 regulations and is still unsure of how they're going to look when they are issued. And so now disability activists, realizing the full potential of 504, which remember, if you're covering any entity that receives federal funding, covers every hospital, every public school, every university, they all can't discriminate. They all have to make reasonable accommodations. Huge, huge implications. Disability activists, this is now on the forefront of their agenda business groups or in particular, you know, trade associations associated with hospitals and education entities and so on are really pushing to weaken this regulation. And so a broad coalition 
of disability organizations representing not just the the, uh, independent living movement, which at the time was primarily focused around physical disability, but also other parts of the coalition, you know, really come together. And in April of 1977, they do simultaneous sit-ins at federal buildings of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare across the country. And they decide to fight for them on April 5th, 1977. Proud and defiant, five to six hundred people in wheelchairs with walking canes and hearing aids storm the regional office of Health, Education, and Welfare in San Francisco. Their demand is quite simple. Issue the 504 regulations. We've been waiting four years. Come on already. Congress promised civil rights protections for people with disabilities. Never mind that we didn't really notice that they were doing so until afterwards, but they did make this promise. And we want to see these put into actual practice. So issue the regs. Actually, the demonstration is going on throughout the entire nation, Washington, New York, Denver, here in San Francisco. Well, in most cities, these sit-ins are dispersed relatively quickly. But in San Francisco, disability activists actually managed to hold the HEW building for a month. It's to this day the, the longest takeover of a federal building in American history. And I've just gotten word to that these people are now locked into the building. At six o'clock this building did close down. However, about a half hour ago they came up with an agreement. None of these people are going to be arrested or moved out of this building. A lot of things go into that. I mean, some of it is police and politicians don't love the optics of dragging wheelchair users and people with visible disabilities out. Our role that afternoon was to ask the people in the federal bureaucracy to call Washington and press for the signing of 504 as drafted. For the disabled, the signing of Regulation 504 is the difference between living and existing. In addition to that, because it's San Francisco, you have the rallying around of lots of other civil rights groups, Um, gay rights groups, Black Panthers, unions, a lot of other groups really rally to put pressure on federal government to A, not arrest all these people, and B, to listen to their demands. Um, Eventually, the regulations are issued, and they're they're relatively strong. And this, this moment here, when disability activists forced the issuance of the 504 regulations is is really, you know, the crucial moment when you start to see disability recognized as a civil rights issue. If you don't have 504, you don't have ADA, because essentially what ADA does is it takes the next step. It expands this to entities that don't get federal funding as well. But uh, in the absence of of winning that fight around 504 and and winning those protections in their strongest possible form, you're not going to see the progress that eventually leads to the passage of the ADA. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about sort of the lead up to the ADA, its passage, and what it meant. Stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. And we're back. So we just spent the first part of the episode going over the early history of the disability rights movement. But now we want to hone in on the policy. You see this sort of flourishing of, of disability rights groups in the 70s. You have a big galvanizing fight around Section 504. What does the landscape look like, Ari, when uh, we get to sort of late 1980s, 1990, when when the ADA is eventually passed? These are the Reagan years, the early Bush years. What's kind of the state of play going into it? Let's start with the Reagan years. Okay, so, you know, Ronald Reagan is elected and everyone is, I think, quite justifiably terrified um, because in the first few years of the Reagan administration, they, they do go after um, 504. They, they try and weaken those regulations again. They also go after the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. They try and weaken that, which you know had just been won, providing the right for students with disabilities to go to public school and have access to a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. Today, we call it IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. But, you know, the Reagan administration goes after that. And there's reason to believe, you know, that they might succeed. Remember, the Reagan administration did succeed in gutting the Community Mental Health Services Act that the Carter administration had passed um, only very slightly before. And that does play a role in deinstitutionalization of persons with mental illness not going as well as it uh, otherwise could have. So, I mean, Reagan does do a lot of damage. But um, disability activists are surprisingly successful at pushing back 
on the attack on 504 and on the attack on IDEA's predecessor law, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. I've spoken with Madeline Will, who would later become the uh, Assistant Secretary of Special Education and Rehab Services under the Reagan administration. It's played a major role in Down syndrome advocacy over the course of many years. And she shared with me that, that when she first took over as Assistant Secretary uh, of Education for Special Education, she, she would hear stories from the staff there about how the halls were so full of letters of people protesting the effort to weaken these new protections that, that you know, they could barely move. Um, you know, it's just an incredible mass mobilization. Um, you know, and some of it is people have just won these legal protections and they don't want to give it up. Some of it is in the years leading up to this, there is some very strategic organizing. After the 504 regulations are um, promulgated in 77, the federal government funds some disability rights groups to go from state to state to train people about what they require. And these activists are very savvy. Um, you know, they, they basically say, okay, well, we can't do advocacy using federal funds, but hey, we're in Des Moines anyway. During the day, we'll hold the training. During the evening, we're going to have a conversation with folks about how you start your disability rights group and, you know, how you build, you know, some capacity and infrastructure. And, and in truth, there's a long history of that and disability advocacy to this day. So when the Reagan years come, all that advocacy is activated. Um, and they do largely manage to save 504. They do largely manage to save the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. Um, there is some aggressive and quite punishing uh, efforts by the Reagan administration to kick people off of Social Security disability insurance. But, uh, you know, in part because of the backlash, Congress and the courts install some protections in SSDI, which eventually led to the expansion of the program. And perhaps most interestingly, you see, particularly when we start to get to the midpoint of the Reagan years, some collaboration between disability activists and the Reagan administration about areas of common interest in particular related to bioethics. Um, there are a series of cases in the 80s called the Baby Doe cases involving the denial of life-sustaining care to um, newborn infants with disabilities. The Reagan administration is interested in this from a pro-life standpoint. Um, the disability rights community is interested in it from a civil rights discrimination standpoint. And there are some common efforts of varying degrees of success. You know, ultimately, the courts really limited what you could do, but they do win some uh, victories to try and address this. And I would say um, because of the crisis of what could be lost, the different diagnosis groups um, start to come closer together because of some of these limited areas of collaboration um, the disability rights movement actually does learn to work with some Republicans, and that proves crucial uh, when it comes to you know, the eventual push to pass the ADA. 
How does that push start? Is there sort of a strategy among sort of leading groups that that's going to be the session where they're going to make a push for a big national bill? How does that get on the agenda? So there are a variety of things that happen. Um, first, even though there are tensions, disability groups have formed some pretty close relationships with other civil rights communities, uh, particularly through the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and you know other major civil rights groups. And they do a pretty good job socializing the idea that one of the things we need is a broader disability rights law. At the same time, you see a very concerted effort on the part of disability activists to form relationships with the, the broad range of campaigns in the 1988 presidential election. Um, and it's very strategic. You know, it's sort of the idea, I'll, I'll advise this candidate, you advise that candidate, let's, you know, chat amongst themselves discreetly to see what we can get out of all of them. And so, you know, this really only works because all of the pieces come together at the same time. Through the National Council, you have a clear legislative framework. You have relationships with the broader civil rights community, which can make this a priority across a liberal Washington. You have relationships with Republicans, which have been built up, you know, these personal connections and the collaboration um, that took place during the Reagan years. And of course, you also have a very different Republican Party. And all of those things align to make the passage of a broad disability civil rights law possible. I will say one more thing about that, though. There's a great story. I think Pat Wright, the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, who's crucial in the center of the passage of this law, tells this story. She is sitting on the um, South Lawn of the White House, the big signing ceremony for the passage of the ADA. She's sitting next to Senator Ted Kennedy, who right before President Bush signs the law, leans over to her and says, uh, Pat, yes, Senator Kennedy, what if he reads it first? <laughs> and, <laughs> and Pat says, <laughs> and Pat says, don't worry, he won't. <laughs> and there's an element of truth there because, of course, you know, the ADA had far broader implications than, uh, you know, was broad, was generally realized at the time. They knew they were signing a civil rights law. They knew it was going to apply broadly across disabilities. They knew it would apply to employment. They knew it would apply to places of public accommodation, to state and local governments, etc. But I don't think the political leadership, particularly uh, the more conservative folks who ended up coming on board particularly realized the, the breadth of the changes that the ADA would bring about. So what does the kind of text of the legislation do to set up this unexpectedly radical policy regime going forward? How does the ADA work? One of the first things I would highlight about the ADA and its predecessor law, Section 504, is there is no specific list of if you have a condition that's on this list, you get protection. And if you don't have a condition that's on this list, you don't. The ADA's definition of disability is functional in nature. It's a person 
who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities or a record of such an impairment or being regarded as having such an impairment. And that's quite explicit. There's a desire to really do honor to the broad nature of the coalition that passes the ADA. Activists really aggressively push back at efforts to try and limit the scope of that protection. In fact, during the effort to pass the ADA, there was an effort to limit those legal protections for persons with HIV AIDS and um, disability rights advocacy community. And to their credit, the Bush administration actually successfully pushed back and prevented that from happening. So the ADA's protections apply broadly. And they provide not just non-discrimination, but also reasonable accommodations. So this shows up in any number of different contexts. You know, in employment, for example, you might have someone who is a computer programmer, but they are hard of hearing. And so they can't use the phone. They can't hop on conference calls. And so you might have them ask as a reasonable accommodation to have access to a live captioning service like CART in order to give them access to um, conference calls. You might have someone who is blind and asks as a accommodation to have access to a computer with screen reader software. All of these things become part of this construct of changes that um, provide for equal access. Now, it's not open-ended, right? You, you know, you can't say, well, I am applying for a job as a telemarketer and I don't want to have to use the phone. That's considered part of the basic definition of being qualified to be a telemarketer. So in fact, the law is quite tailored in this way. It, it, is, it is not uh, unlimitedly radical. But it does require some very significant changes in our society. Obviously, sort of anything this sweeping is going to have some kind of backlash. But the demands that this places on certain businesses to make their buildings wheelchair accessible, to add captioning for video content and other services, for hotels to, to have elevators that are capable of bringing people up. What does that backlash look like and, and how does how does the ADA survive that? Since it seems like it's threatening a lot of really powerful and, and wealthy groups in the United States. Well, and also, and just to piggyback on that, in any regulatory context, there's a certain understanding that there's an economy of scale, right? And so larger private sector institutions are going to have an easier time adapting to new to new regulatory burden than smaller organizations that might already be kind of struggling to make ends meet. So, and that might also be like more sympathetic defendants in cases where, you know, in, in litigation or kind of just in a political context where it's a mom and pop store owner rather than, you know, the world's biggest hospital chain. I think you're right. You know, that does play a role in the politics. Unfortunately, the people who wrote the ADA very explicitly considered that question. So one of the defenses against not granting a reasonable accommodation is this construct called undue burden. And, you know, calculating what constitutes an undue burden for a, a given entity really depends on this, their size and the amounts of resources that they ha have available. So not so long ago, there was a case which a lot of people got very mad about um, where 
uh, one of the universities in the UC system, I think it was Berkeley, uh, yes, I believe it was UC Berkeley, got sued because they were making available recordings of their classes and lectures broadly to the public and were not captioning them. And, you know, this was raised as a concern under the ADA. And, you know, folks said, well, you know, are we going to have to now, you know, put in place legally required um, captioning on anything that anyone posts on YouTube? for example. And, you know, the answer is no. I mean, as a matter of best practice, you really should, you know, even if you're a single YouTuber, but the law recognizes that if you have, say, UC Berkeley's endowment, um, (laughs) that, (laughs) you know, uh, it's really hard to make the case that paying for captioning is an undue burden. So there's a very big difference between, say, UC Berkeley and, you know, a sole YouTuber or, you know, say, Vox Media and a random blogger out there um, when it comes to what the law requires. So uh, there were, there, there's definitely been a tremendous amount of backlash. And I think there are two kinds that I, I think really I want to highlight. One is you have businesses really objecting to the idea that they have to make accommodations and and make themselves accessible in particular, because a lot of the most costly changes are in the built environment proactively rather than only after a complaint is raised. So there are efforts to chip away at the law to basically say, well, A business doesn't have to be accessible until a person with a disability tries and fails to access it. You know, the response has really been, hey, that's not how our civil rights laws work in general. And that would really create a situation where the assumption is that uh, the world is not accessible to people with disabilities until someone knocks on the door and really pushes for um, a given change and incurs the expense of hiring a lawyer. The other area where we saw an assault on the ADA and on disability rights law that was initially successful, was eventually turned back, was in the definition of disability. The ADA defines disability as a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And in the 1990s and early aughts, you saw a number of very bad court opinions, which interpreted the definition of disability very narrowly. One of the things they did was they said if someone was controlling their disability effectively, they might not have civil rights protections anymore. And this led to nonsensical situations. Um, There was a case in which you had a pharmacist who worked for one of the big box stores who had diabetes. And he had to take a 30-minute break each day um, uh, for lunch and in order to administer insulin in order to control his diabetes. And he was fired because of this. The employer refused to provide him with reasonable accommodations. And so he sued, and the courts ruled that he was not protected under the ADA and did not have the right to reasonable accommodation because his diabetes was well-controlled with insulin. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you had all kinds of cases like this where people who used prosthetics, people who controlled their disability through learned behavior, um, through education, through all kinds of other things, were deemed as not having civil rights protections. So in 2008, Congress passed the ADA Amendments Act, which indicated that the definition of disability should be interpreted broadly and without regard to whatever mitigating measures people were using to control their disability. And because of the ADA Amendments Act, you really now see the law applied in this very broad and sweeping way. Um, and it's been very relevant during COVID, you know, where, where you have seen people try and assert rights under the ADA in order to access curbside voting. Actually, unfortunately, the Supreme Court disagreed with us there um, in order to, you know, access changes in public school, um, in order to allow people who are immunocompromised to, to access education, and in order to make any number of other changes, many of these people have never thought of themselves as disabled before. But because the ADA is a law that applies very broadly, they have these protections. We're going to take one more break, but when we come back, there is still more. We're going to talk about what the current landscape of disability policy looks like and, and what the current sort of demands and fights by the disability rights movement are. Uh, so stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Welcome back. So we're sort of living in this, this world that the Americans with Disabilities Act and court interpretations of it, good and bad, have created. What comes next? Obviously, passing the Civil Rights Act did not end the Black Freedom Movement. Uh, what are the current sort of big issues that are sort of dominating the agenda for disability rights groups today? So there are a lot of them, but I want to highlight two in particular. Olmstead was a landmark Supreme Court decision in 1999, which found that under the ADA, states had an obligation to offer people with disabilities services in the most integrated setting. And it was used um, successfully by uh, two women with psychiatric and intellectual disabilities living in an institution in the state of Georgia to argue that Georgia had an obligation to provide them with services to leave the institution and live in the community as well. So one of the things that I think is very exciting about this is um, Olmstead has historically been used to get people out of what we might traditionally call institutions, um, nursing homes, state institutions, things of that nature. 
there is a growing interest in experimenting with, in fact, some cases have been brought to court uh, on this theory, the idea that um, the unnecessary incarceration of persons with mental illness in the criminal justice system by virtue of lack of access to uh, adequate community services might also be a basis for Olmstead litigation, that you can use this legal precedent that really, you know, comes out of the ADA and has been developed and built up in the context of support for physical disability and developmental disability and some in the area of mental illness, um, but, you know, really focused around medical services and apply it to the work of criminal justice reform. Because, of course, many persons with mental illness cycle in and out of the criminal justice system, largely because of lack of access to adequate community services. So, you know, if Olmstead and the ADA say that states have an obligation to provide services in the most integrated setting, rather than just letting people default into a segregated setting by virtue of falling into crisis, maybe that can be applied to criminal justice reform too. And I have to say, I love that kind of cross-pollination across movements. There are, of course, massive implications for racial justice as well. Uh, I just think there are some very interesting things we can do because the disability rights laws are so broad and because they have fairly uh, significant impact on welfare policy to leverage disability rights to advance the priorities of um, the intersection of disability with other forms of marginalization. Another area that I think is particularly important is social security policy. One of the big unanswered questions about the ADA is, you know, the, the law has really helped to make the community more accessible. It's helped to get people out of institutions. It's helped to make built environment more welcoming. It does not appear to have done much with respect to increasing employment rates of people with disabilities. And so the question is, why is that? Um, and there are a variety of theories, but one of them is we have a social security infrastructure that operates on pre-ADA and really even pre-504 assumptions about people with disabilities. Right now, SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, and its close cousin, SSI, Supplemental Security Income, um, which provide cash assistance to people with disabilities, these programs operate on the assumption that one is either disabled and has no workforce participation or non-disabled and requires no assistance. And that doesn't really reflect people's lived realities. The problem is, is that in many of these laws, and SSI in particular, um, this is the case for, it can be very, very difficult. Um, so SSI is the cash assistance program that most people who uh, are born with disabilities will be on because it's for people without a prior work history. And SSI benefits phase out at $1 of lost benefits for every $2 of earnings. Um, it's essentially a 50% marginal tax rate. We don't tax 
millionaires at that <laughs> level. Um, but if you are a very low income person with a disability um, uh, who is receiving cash assistance, that is the rate at which you lose benefits if you enter the workforce. In addition, SSI has an asset cap of $2,000. And that asset cap, $2,000, is not indexed to inflation. It was last updated in 1989. It's lost over half its value since then. We literally means test this program more every single year. SSI exempts the first $85 a month of someone's earnings from what gets deducted from their, their uh, SSI check. Now, when that $85 a month was set in the 1970s, it was a decent amount of money. Perhaps not enough, but a decent amount of money. Again, not indexed to inflation. It is worth massively less than it once was. And all of this comes back to the fact that this is a program which serves definitionally um, low-income people with disabilities, a group that does not necessarily have the political power that old age insurance beneficiaries have. And so it's been allowed to languish. Now, if you are a person with a disability who faces an effective 50% marginal tax rate on their income, you know, and I, I say tax rate, it's actually the loss of benefits, but it functions the same way as far as incentives are concerned. And you can't have more than $2,000 of assets at any given time. That's a huge disincentive to work. Now, you might ask, well, you know, if the program is so bad, why do people still rely on it? And certainly the cash portion of SSI plays a role, although the cash benefits are very low. Um, they're, in fact, under the federal poverty rate. The um, SSI federal benefit rate for 2022 is $841 a month. Um, but some people rely on the program for cash assistance. But much more important for many people with disabilities is access to Medicaid. People on SSI get presumptive access to Medicaid in most of the country, and Medicaid is the only payer for home and community-based services, the services that for a lot of people with disabilities help people get out of bed in the morning. Um, they help people get dressed, use the bathroom. You know, these are really life or death services. There's no private insurance equivalent to this. Um, you know, even Medicare doesn't cover them. And so you have a lot of people with disabilities who have to restrict their work effort in order to retain Medicaid eligibility. Over the years, Congress has tried to fix this. But each of these fixes have been piecemeal, and they have come with a significant amount of administrative burden. So, for example... Congress passed something called the ABLE Act in 2014. The ABLE Act allows people with disabilities or their families to set up special tax advantage savings accounts modeled on the 529 accounts that the people use for college savings that are not subject to that $2,000 asset cap. But you need the ability to, you know, really navigate the financial system, you know, often to have access to a financial planner to do this. So, you know, using an ABLE account, you can save up to $100,000 without losing benefits. In many instances, um, more than that without losing Medicaid. But for the most vulnerable people with disabilities who don't have family support, 
they don't have access to that. So we've essentially created, through the imposition of administrative burden, one system um, for those who can afford a benefits planner or an attorney and you know have access to all of the tricks that you can use um, in order to make this tenable, and another system for people with disabilities who do not have access to those benefits. Just looking forward, what makes you most optimistic about the future of the disability rights movement? I think one of the great strengths of disability rights is that it continues to get broader, right? So we talked about the idea that disability activists built a law without a specific list of who's covered and who's not, and it's proved very flexible. And we're seeing that in the modern day. We're seeing growing interest on the part of, say, people with substance use disorders in making further use of ADA legal protections. We're seeing growing interest on the part of people with chronic pain and other chronic conditions in making use of ADA legal protections. We're seeing discussion of using the ADA to advance criminal justice reform, um, to advance any number of broader priorities. And, you know, there's sort of a changing of the guard that takes place with that, right? The 1970s disability rights movement, in some sense, emerged uh, because of the polio generation. Well, you know, we don't we don't have a lot of polio anymore, but the victories that that generation won really have been passed forward to other groups of people with disabilities who have made them their own. And I think we're going to continue to see that. The thing that I find particularly exciting is the idea that even as the nature of the disabilities involve change and evolve, the um, disability rights movement is going to continue and only get broader and more powerful and become a bigger and bigger part of American life. To me, that's very optimistic. I'm quite excited about it. Thank you so much for, for being here, Ari Niaman and Dara Lynn, our, our regular co-host. Make sure to drop me off in the right location when you steer the time machine. I, I don't want to end up in, like, uh, Regency England. <laughs> this is this is not a taxi. You'll get dropped off at the at a, a normal curb. Uh, this is, I'm going to need to hitchhike my way back to the 21st century. Maybe I'll skip a few years. <laughs> there will be a curb cut, but it's fine. <laughs> Our producer in The Time Machine is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>